You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. If you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Those of you who are uncomfortable reading God's Word in public, this is like the nightmare passage for you. Just, I'm just going to read to you just a lot of names. Uh, little theologians, here's what I'd like for you all to do. I'd like for you guys to draw a picture of a mobile. Do you know what a mobile is? Right, stuff hangs from your ceiling, little wires and strings. I want you to draw a picture of a mobile, but, but I, I want you to draw it in such a way that uh, you have at the very top of it Adam, and then at the very bottom of it, Jesus. Okay, is Adam and all of humanity, and, and Luke is going to show how uh, Adam is connected to Jesus. So, so draw, a, uh, draw a mobile for me. Uh, we're at Luke uh, chapter 3, beginning at verses, uh, verse 23. This is the genealogy that shows up in Luke's gospel. There is another one in the New, in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew chapter 1. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 23. Let's uh, pray together, and then we'll read a lot of names. Our Father, we thank you so much for your scripture, and we thank you that you have superintended it by your Holy Spirit, that we would have it today with us. Lord, would you forgive us for shirking parts of the word? This may be a part of scripture that we just blast through, we skip over it. But Father, we are grateful that we have an opportunity to spend time uh, looking at a passage that we might ordinarily skip over. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege of preaching your entire scripture. As challenging as it might be, thank you, Father, for that privilege. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, use my words so that they would actually be your words? And would you, uh, would you cause, cause me to be uh, a servant of yours that we would properly understand this part of scripture? Thank you for your wonderful grace and mercy shown to us as we gather together before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 3, uh, beginning at, uh, at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Yatnai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matatias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Matatias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kossam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, 
the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arpachad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of our Lord. It's an odd passage, isn't it? We, we wonder if maybe the genre of gospel literature takes a turn here. Maybe there's gospel literature before, and then it becomes a historical artifact, historical record, and then it returns after this in Luke chapter 4 to gospel narrative once again. I don't think that's what's happening. Let me remind you of a few things. It, last week, uh, Pat taught out of... a. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and so we've been away from Luke for a couple of weeks, but uh, keep in mind that Luke is speaking to Theophilus, and he's already told Theophilus uh, about this occasion, and the occasion is the baptism of Jesus. And on that occasion, as Jesus uh, comes up from the water and Luke says, Jesus prays, God speaks from heaven and he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon Jesus in a visible form, and Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. That's, that's what Luke has just described to Theophilus and to us. And he's about to, after the, after the genealogy, he's about to tell us how this man, Jesus, God's Son, who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, is in Luke 4.1, then full of the Holy Spirit, and he is tested in the wilderness. And I think that that symmetry matters a lot. Because if you look at this genealogy, you see right at the beginning of the genealogy is an event that takes place in the wilderness that involves the, the uh, Holy Spirit ministering to Jesus. And then at the end of the genealogy, uh, we have a very similar setting. It is Jesus in the wilderness being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And that's actually very important because what Luke is saying to Theophilus is he's describing these two uh, uh, instances or two occasions that are 30 years old for Theophilus. Luke's probably writing around 62 AD. And as he's writing to Theophilus, he's describing these events that they're like they're 30 years old. And think about this, for us, these, are, these, these events are 1900 years old. 
And Luke does something very interesting. Of course, guided by the Holy Spirit, Luke, in between those two wilderness settings, sets the chronology of Jesus. There would have been other opportunities to describe this as he's writing to Theophilus. In fact, it would make pretty good sense to just, just begin your gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. We find it in Matthew chapter 1. But Luke doesn't do that. He locates the genealogy of Jesus right between these two wilderness scenes. And I wonder if part of the reason why he's doing that is he is saying to Theophilus, 30 years after the fact, he's saying, these two events are not meaningless events. You're wrapped up in them. You are in, you are in these events. In fact, you're sandwiched in these events. And I wonder if Luke isn't saying that also to us. Sometimes we can take the gospel as just this loose collection of events, and we can describe the gospel in such a way that we're describing, oh, I don't know, the events of World War I. Almost as if it's a historical exercise. Do you uh, feel uh, pulled to this or caught in this, Christian, as you are describing what you believe to someone who does not believe in the gospel? And it's just a matter of just going through this data and if, if you just hear the data, acquire the data, believe in the data, you're fine. And uh, maybe, maybe that's true, but Luke is saying to Theophilus, you're actually bound up in the data. And Christian, you are bound up in the data. Because as soon as Luke goes all the way back beyond Abraham, okay, Matthew stops at Abraham. Luke goes beyond Abraham, and he goes all the way to Adam. And as soon as he talks about Adam, he's talking about all of us. We all belong to Adam. You know, one of the, the, the needful things of our church is for our church to be a church that loves the life of Adam. That we go to the Garden of Eden frequently. That, that we see that rebelliousness. Uh, on the one hand, that we would see the rebelliousness in our, of our own heart that we would happily, willingly go to God and ask Him to uh, kill that rebellious spirit in our heart, that indwelling sin that continues to work in my members. But we also as Christians need to go back to the Garden of Eden that we have something to say to our, to our unsaved friends and family members. And that we can say to them that you were in that Garden of Eden as well. And in that rebellion of Adam, so too is your own heart a rebellious heart. And you have a cantankerous spirit because that cantankerous spirit was uh, introduced to you by Adam. We need to have this good habit of going back to Adam. Because what Luke is doing for Theophilus is he is showing Theophilus how he fits in the story of the gospel. How he fits how the gospel is for him, how he is tied up in the problem that's introduced in the gospel through Adam, and how he is, through faith in Christ, he is actually resolved, his life is resolved, his story is resolved, his identity is resolved in the second Adam of the gospel. So that's what I think Luke is doing by placing this genealogy uh, right in the center. And I'll say it again, Matthew clearly is interested in showing the Jews where they fit in the story of the gospel because he stops at Abraham. I think Matthew's very concerned that the Jews would understand that this Jesus is the Messiah. It's almost as if that purpose that, that Matthew has is a purpose that's a little bit different for Luke. 
going beyond Abraham, going beyond the nation of Israel so that all of us would be bound up together. It's not about a nation. It's about a, a rebellious heart. It's, it's not about being a part of Israel. It's, it's about knowing who you are as a sinner polluted by the guilt of Adam. So I think the big idea of the passage, the, the theme of the passage, despite the fact that I've read 70-some-odd names to you, I think what Luke is saying to Theophilus is that the fate of every human being actually hangs in the man Jesus. The fate of every human being it hangs in this second Adam. He takes them to the first Adam so that they would see that, and he presents to them the second Adam. So, uh, first of all, just stating the obvious, this is one of those passages where you can just have thousands of questions, and I'm pretty sure I'll be able to answer like maybe six of them. It's just really, it's just a difficult passage. Uh, and I've read several articles on how to deal with the genealogy in Luke 3. And I'm, you know, I've said this before, it just gets tiring. I'm, I'm tired of reading all the articles. There seems to be very little resolution. And good, guys that I like a lot, they're, they're on both sides in terms of how exactly to deal with this genealogy. So just to kind of, we, we can talk about this after the sermon, but maybe to forestall some of those questions, let me just give you a quick lowdown on how I'm reading the genealogy, how I think it's helpful to understand it. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of names. There's 75 names plus Joseph, Adam, and God, right? So you have 78 names there. And 35 of these names are unknown. You don't find them anywhere else in Scripture, so that makes the passage pretty hard to deal with. And I asked the, the little theologians to draw a picture of a mobile because I think this image helps us. If you imagine this great big complex mobile that has, a, has um, uh, every representative of humanity hanging from a ceiling, if you just go through and just cut all the little strands so that now you have a pile of names, you begin to see the task of Matthew and Luke. They're going through the pile of names and they're constructing a chronology to serve certain purposes. Please, please don't be tempted to look at this chronology or, or genealogy as nothing more than a scientific experiment. I, I know the temptation is huge to just go and lay out all these folks and add up, you know, 40 years for every generation and um, look for precise dates. I, I just, I don't think that that's the purpose for Matthew or for Luke. And they're, they're going through this, this pile of names and they're, they're structuring them in such a way that they are able to, by the Holy Spirit's leading, uh, tell us what we need to hear. So, What's happening is there's a message involved. Matthew clearly has organized all of the names so that there are three uh, separate groups of 14 generations each. Matthew has clearly done that. Um, Luke doesn't seem to have done that. He doesn't seem to be uh, as uh, structured. Uh, but there is some kind of structure. Uh, seems to be uh, Luke has 11 groups with seven in each group, but... Who knows what that means? You just, there's not a Da Vinci Code here. Uh, he, he's laying them out that we would, that we would see these, these big principles, these big pictures. Luke, for instance, doesn't stop for details, and he doesn't include any women in his ge genealogy, but Matthew does both of those things. And, and I think this, this is how I'm just going to summarize it, and this is what may lead to conversations afterwards. I think both Matthew and Luke are presenting... Uh, one line. They're describing Joseph's family. Both of them are doing that. They're going to highlight some different names occasionally so that the, na the list in 
Matthew 1 and Luke 3. They're going to be a little bit different. But, but keep in mind, I mean, from Abraham to King David, these names are exactly the same, or these lists are exactly the same. From Abraham to King David, Matthew and Luke, those, those, name, those names line up just fine. But from King David all the way to Jesus, there, there's just, the, the names don't quite work. And I wonder if this is what's happening. I wonder if when Matthew is describing the line of his Savior, Jesus, I think Matthew is following Joseph's line uh, more so uh, in terms of uh, the natural order. So, for instance, uh, Jesus' dad's name is Joseph. And then Joseph's dad's name, according to Matthew, is Jacob. But according to Luke, Joseph's dad's name is not Jacob. Joseph's dad's name is Heli, H-E-L-I. And you look at that and you say, okay, well, clearly there must be like, you know, Jesus had two dads or something. I mean, it's just, it's not quite right. And, and I wonder, a leveret marriage was practiced a lot in the first century. Jesus makes a big deal out of it. The Sadducees asked Jesus, you know, who is going to uh, marry this woman if all of her husbands die? Um, and and this, is, this is happening in the first century. And the scholars that I like say, you know, there's two lines here, but Matthew is just so concerned about uh, making sure that he's got the natural parentage. Whereas Luke is, he'll switch occasionally and follow a slightly different line because he's looking at leveret marriages. So, for instance, uh, D.A. Carson says that Jesus, uh, his dad was Joseph, and then Joseph uh, actually uh, either died young in life, and therefore uh, Jesus had a new dad. There was a leveret marriage in which Mary married a man by the name of Heli, H-E-L-I. Now, I don't know if that's what happened. Luke doesn't feel as though we need to know that. But it would, seem, it would seem to me that Matthew seems to be focusing on certain figures in Jesus' background for a purpose. And Luke doesn't seem to be focusing on those same figures. Occasionally he is going to uh, deviate and he's going to include uh, someone else. Uh, maybe a stepdad or maybe a dad who has uh, married the mom after the birth dad passed away. But they're both the line of Joseph. Now, Luke is all about this. Luke wants us to see this as being the beginning of a public ministry. And so Luke says Jesus is about the age of 30. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry is about to happen. And that's very important to Luke. This is a beginning. And I think the 30 years connects to the beginning of a Levite service. That a Levite can't actually serve his brothers and sisters at the temple until he is at the age of 30. And I wonder if Luke is just hinting that Jesus becomes 30 and he's ready to serve. He's ready to serve. And that's part of the reason why Luke is giving us this genealogy of Jesus. But it's not just the genealogy or the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's the beginning of humankind. This is gene Jesus' genealogy, but it's ours too. Jesus took on human nature. And his name then can show up right in the list of a family tree. Isn't that remarkable? That God would condescend himself so that his only begotten son would appear in a human family tree. That's just remarkable. 
how wonderful that our God would do that and how, how amazing then that we have an opportunity for uh, Luke then to fit Jesus right into that family tree. It's the beginning of his public ministry. It's the beginning of all humankind. But it's also, it's the beginning of victory over sin. Luke goes backwards right to Adam. But you know, when he gives the, the, the genealogy in this order, something strange happens. You, you notice it as you read it, that Luke, as he's giving this genealogy, he's actually starting with Jesus Yes, and then he goes all. The, he's going against time. He's going backwards as he progresses until he gets to Adam. That's not what Matthew does. Matthew does it the sensible way. Matthew starts with the oldest guy and just lists all the sons until you get to the present guy. That makes sense to me. But Luke flips him around, and so he ends with the oldest guy. Why would he end with the oldest guy? Why would he do that? Because he's describing the beginning of our victory over sin in Christ Jesus because then Adam is right next to Jesus' ministry in the wilderness. Right after we see the name Adam, what do we see? We see God and we see the Son being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. That is important. That's important. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that your Jesus goes right back into the Garden of Eden and He takes care of that sin at its root so that you see Adam right there, a reminder of your sinfulness, and then you see the work of the second Adam right next to each other. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. And maybe you didn't catch that. So it's beginnings, but it's Luke laying the groundwork to show how it is that we relate to this Jesus. He's laying this groundwork. He's challenging us, look, your Jesus stands right next to your Adam. Your Jesus stands right next to your Adam. Your pollution in that man, Adam, is met by this Jesus, who's not distant, but he comes near he was in that garden. He is with you now. He is a part of that human family tree. He is there. And wait and watch what he does. Watch what he does. He's going to go into the wilderness, and Luke is going to show you how you are delivered from sin by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, who did for you what Israel was unable to do for you, even though their heavenly Father led them across the Red Sea. In their wilderness, they sinned over and over and over again. And Jesus will not let that happen. He's the better Adam. So this genealogy then, I think, is doing two things. The first thing I've already introduced, it's, it's Luke wanting us to look backwards to see that Jesus is the son of Adam. Look backwards and see that Jesus is the son of Adam. But he also wants us to look forward to see that Jesus is the pleasing son of God. Not the displeasing Son of God, the pleasing Son of God. Let me just talk a little bit about these uh, two things and then we will close. Luke wants us to look backwards. He clearly wants us to see our sin in Adam. Did you notice in verse 23 where Jesus is the son of Joseph as was supposed? Isn't that interesting? As was supposed. Why do you think that's there? I think what Luke is doing is he's reminding us that, yes, this Jesus is connected to humanity. And he's not connected to humanity uh, just as a show. He is really and entirely connected to humanity. But don't for a moment think that he is sinful like humanity. 
He's connected. He is with us. But he's not sinful. And what, what Luke is doing is he's reminding us, even here in this passage of the virgin birth, Joseph is the supposed father of Jesus in that he is not the one who impregnated Mary. It was God who conceived the life of his son in Mary by his Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is a part of the family tree. Jesus is a part of the family tree. But don't, be mis don't misconstrue that as Jesus is just as sinful as Joseph. Joseph is riddled with Adam's pollution. Jesus is not. But do not imagine the Garden of Eden without Jesus. Do not imagine the first Adam and be done with the story. Because Luke takes us back to the Garden of Eden that we might see that Adam, and he shows us that the fate of every man resides with this Jesus. Will he undo what happened in the Garden of Eden? But Luke goes on and he wants us to see that this son, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the son who can take us beyond our repentance. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What has everyone been doing in the wilderness when Jesus is baptized? What's everyone been doing? Everyone has been repenting. It is a repentance festival. Everyone is there and they're repenting of their sin. They're being baptized by John the Baptist. But Luke refuses to allow us to sit right there in that wilderness and look at that repentance. Repentance will save no one. Are you, are you hearing that? Repentance will save no one. If you think that simply an awareness of how bad you are will gain you God's favor, you're sorely mistaken. You are sorely mistaken. You can't go before God and say, I am more sincere than anyone else I know. Therefore, you must receive me. Luke does not allow us to think that our repentance will save us. It's not the repentance in the wilderness that saves us. It's the perfection of Jesus in the wilderness that saves us. It's not a sincerity of an awareness of our sinfulness. I come up out of the river having been baptized, and I'm saved by that repentance. What, what Luke has an opportunity to do is to show us the mechanics of our salvation by showing us what Jesus does for us in a different wilderness. Christian, that's where your salvation resides. It's not your deep feelings about sin. It's not your mournfulness over the bad things that you have done in life. That's not even helpful. That'll only fool you into finding security for your eternal salvation outside of Jesus. It's not even helpful. This is your salvation, Christian. It's the work of another. It's Jesus entering into his own wilderness that he might fight your fight, that he might carry you through that wilderness, a wilderness that you could never carry yourself through. Jesus is the one who once and for all finally removes the shame of the first Adam's sin. You need to go home this afternoon and you need to read Romans 5 and you need to read 1 Corinthians 15. And there you'll, he you'll hear Paul describe this second Adam. He'll, he'll say that in that first Adam, all die, but in the second Adam shall all be made alive. 
This is from Romans. All be made alive. Jesus is in the wilderness making life. Standing up to the temptation of the evil one. Face to face. 40 days, 40 nights making life. He is doing what Adam should have done. Paul also says that the first Adam was a giver of natural life, but this last Adam is a giver of eternal life. You need to know, all of you and myself, you need to know that you are not living an isolated life. No one here wants to be helped by someone else. We all want to solve our own problems. We all want to choose faith in an isolated way. It's just me and this philosophy that I think is better than all other philosophies. But that's not who you are. The Bible says that you are connected to the guilt and pollution of sin in Adam. You're not starting on neutral ground. You're eternally damned without a second Adam. There's nothing that you can do to resolve the work of that first Adam. Luke is very clear. Here you are. All of us are connected to this Adam. Now, now, will you yearn for a second Adam? Or will you continue to fool yourself that you are that second Adam? Will you receive the grace that is offered in this second Adam? Or will you stubbornly suppress the truth that you are connected to Adam and his rebellion? Which will it be? And this is the message for, that Luke has for Theophilus. Theophilus, you're not just floating out there. You're plugged in right here, right in the Garden of Eden. Now what will you do? And then he's going to show us what Jesus does. It's a genealogy. It's, it's 78 names. But when you see where it's placed and you see who Luke takes us to, you begin to understand these bits and pieces of the gospel to prepare us to see what Jesus is about to do as the second Adam. Let's pray together. We're going to confess the Apostles' Creed. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you have preached to us. You have made yourself known through your word. And Jesus, we thank you that you have seen our problem. You went back to the Garden of Eden. You know exactly what our problem is. And you've met the problem with your blood. Jesus, thank you for being the worker of salvation. Would you cause us to know you more, understand you more deeply as we profess our faith in you? And for those who have not professed faith in you, Jesus, by your grace, would you draw them to see who they are and the worker that they need. To your glory alone. Amen.